This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on April 27, 2020. I'm Wade Gibbs. 100 years ago, a great debate took place between two eminent astronomers of the day, Heber Curtis of the Lick Observatory in Northern California and Harlow Shapley of the Mount Wilson Observatory in Southern California. Speaking to the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., the two dueled over the question of how big the universe is and whether it is composed of millions of far-flung galaxies or just one giant galaxy. Curtis won that debate with his argument that the Milky Way is but a single, isolated drop in a vast cosmological ocean. Now, NASA is commemorating the centennial of this great debate by releasing perspectives from 14 prominent astronomers on one of the great outstanding questions for the 21st century, how will humanity first discover extraterrestrial life? In this episode, Penn State astronomer Jason Wright and I talk about an analysis he published earlier this year that presents a new perspective on the famous Fermi paradox. That's the tension between, on the one hand, the idea that intelligent life ought to be pretty common in a universe as big and old as ours, and, on the other hand, the lack of evidence so far for even a single extraterrestrial civilization. As the Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi is said to have put it, where is everybody? That's a harder question to answer than you might think. And as you'll hear, there are surprising connections between how life might spread throughout galaxies and how pandemics like COVID-19 spread throughout populations. Before we hear from Jason, let's listen to part of what astronomer Sheth Shostak of the SETI Institute has to say about this in his video for the Centennial Debate. Hi, Seth Shostak here. In April of 1920, when Heber Curtis and Harlow Shapley faced off about whether little smudges on photographic plates taken of the heavens were actually external galaxies or not, I mean, that was a fundamental question they were trying to answer. Well, today, one of the fundamental questions that astronomers are trying to answer is, is this the only place with life or even intelligent life? So how are we going to find life if you really think it's out there? And how could you think anything else? I mean, after all, we know there are like a trillion planets in the Milky Way, and there are two trillion other galaxies, each with a trillion planets. I mean, you can multiply those numbers together in your head, and you know that that's a big number. So if there's nothing out there, there's something really special about Earth, and one should be a little bit cherry about believing that. In January, Jason Wright and I talked about how analyses by his group suggest some new ways of thinking about the Fermi Paradox. We spoke at the annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Honolulu. So the story goes that uh, Enrico Fermi, who was a foundational physicist uh, who worked on the Manhattan Project and many problems in fundamental physics, uh, was at lunch with some colleagues in 1950 when he suddenly mused, where is everybody? And what he meant by that uh, is where are the aliens? And what he had reasoned out is that uh, if it's possible if these, that these species exist and that they've built spacecraft, um, that the amount of time it would have taken them by now to have visited every part of the galaxy was much less than the age of the galaxy. There's been more than enough time that stars have been around for them all to have been visited by spacecraft. So if that's the case, and if they're out there, then why aren't they here right now? And that's what we call the Fermi paradox. In recent years, uh, we've developed new technology that allows us to find planets around other stars, and we've discovered huge numbers of planets, way more than a lot yes, of people thousands. imagine would ever be out there. I used to try to keep track, and I can't keep track anymore. I gave up last year. <laughs> and, and so people have been using this, this famous equation called the Drake equation mm -hmm. to try and... Sure estimates, put ranges on upper and lower limits mm -hmm. on how many 
advanced technological spacefaring mm-hmm. civilizations might be out there. Does this play into the Fermi paradox in any way? It's, it's definitely a related concept. So the Drake equation is a wonderful way, as it's been put, of parameterizing our ignorance. So we can estimate how many other civilizations are out there that we might be able to contact, perhaps by radio waves, for instance. By asking questions like, well, how many stars are there? How many of those stars have planets? How many of those planets might have life? How often that life forms? Might it form complex life or um, a multicellular life? Uh, and then how often would that multicellular life do something that we would notice, like send out a radio signal or a spacecraft or something like that? And so it used to be that we had to guess at all of those numbers. And so it was a nice exercise to sort of talk about how little we know about the universe and what's been amazing in the last 20 years has been that we've started to actually answer those questions. And now we know how many stars have planets, and we know how many of those planets might have life on them, and we're really working our way down. And so in some sense, we think we have a better sense of how much there might be out there to find, because all of those answers have come in very optimistically. Most stars have planets. Many, maybe a quarter of stars, have planets that might have liquid water on their surfaces and so on. And so I think that's sort of changed the calculus of looking for life in the universe, including intelligent life, uh, knowing that the most pessimistic estimates of the number of ways we could succeed uh, were exactly that, very pessimistic. And yet we have this situation where we have an N equals one of right. known life. That's in right, the just universe. us. That's right. <clears throat> just us. So that's that's Fermi's uh, question. The way that we usually phrase this problem in terms of where is everybody is actually due to some later authors uh, that really worked the whole thing out. So sometimes it's called the uh, the Hart Tipler argument after Michael Hart and uh, Tipler, who really formalized it. Right. You said it's not a paradox. Explain why it's Well, a I mean, a logical paradox would be to say something like, this statement is false, and there's no paradox here. It's, it's, it's a puzzle. Where are they? Um, and I think that there are a few reasons why it's not really a puzzle. So um, one of them is uh, we don't know that they haven't been here. The assumption uh, behind Hart and Tipler's calculations was that uh, if space travel were possible – uh, or were common among among species throughout the galaxy, that they would definitely do it. They would definitely visit every system, and that having visited a system, they would definitely stay and be obvious. And I think all of those fail because, you know, we have lots of civilizations on Earth, and they rise, and then they fall and go away, and then they're not here anymore. We have lots of species on Earth that rise and fall, and then they're not here anymore. And we like to imagine from the fossil record and from the geological record that we have a really good understanding of everything that lived here and everything that was here. But actually, those records are very thin. The fossil record is extremely incomplete. Um, there was a nice paper last year, uh, 2018, sorry, uh, by Adam Frank and Gavin Schmidt. Uh, talking about this idea of the Anthropocene, how human technology's imprint uh, on Earth is so indelible that it is now a permanent part of the geological record. And then in 500 million years, they'll see this stratum of rock and say, oh, look, that's the Anthropocene. Um, but what they pointed out is that it won't obviously be technological. It'll clearly be something different. But if someone in 500 million years say, oh, I think that was from a global civilization that was burning coal, it, it, there would just be so little evidence for that, that that would be kind of a crackpot theory. And so the, the point is, if Earth has had prior technological civilizations, either because um, you know these aliens have landed here and set up camp for a while and left, or even more whimsically, you know, maybe the dinosaurs had cell phones and everything, um, their point was we actually wouldn't know because our evidence horizon is only about a million years. And past that, technology just doesn't last long enough that we would know it was here. 
So you did some simulations recently that you presented at this conference. Can you talk about sure. how you're trying to put math to work to shed light on the family? Group? Sure. So I should say that I didn't do the simulations. Our team did the simulations, but I did present them here. These are simulations to try and quantify and demonstrate this idea that if you start sending ships out and they set up a colony and then the colony sends out more ships and so on and you repeat this – uh, that you'll eventually populate the whole galaxy in much less than its age. And so we showed that, sure enough, if you assume that you launch one of these settlement ships every, say, 100,000 years, and if the settlements last a million years or something like that, then yeah, pretty quickly the entire galaxy becomes populated with these things. But we also allowed um, ourselves to change those parameters, to say, well, maybe there are some s systems that just don't get settled. Maybe they get to a system and as a rule, it needs to have a certain kind of planet or they won't even bother. Or maybe as a rule, if someone's already living there, there's already life, they say, oh, well, occupied and move on to the next one. Um, and so we allowed for that possibility. And then we also allowed for the possibility that the settlements would end at some point. They'd either die out or move on or whatever. And then after a million years, you wouldn't know they were there. Um, and so we tuned these parameters and we found uh, a lot of interesting parts of this parameter space where you assume how long things last and how fast probes are and so on. So by parameter space, you mean yeah. you're exploring all the different combinations of values of, of these. Of these things, variables. right. Like, right. So like, you know, how far can a, can a settlement ship reasonably go before it, it can it found a settlement? So if we tune that parameter down and say, oh, you can only get it when stars are extremely close together, otherwise they're too far apart. Well, settlements don't happen very often. You have to wait for a chance encounter between stars. Uh, on the other hand, if we assume the probe ranges are very long and the ships are very fast, then it's very easy to settle the galaxy and things get settled quickly. You say a chance encounter among stars. Yeah. We don't think of stars as moving relative to one another, but that's right. they do. Yeah, right? and a lot of previous work on this has just assumed that there's this static grid of stars, basically, and asked what it would take to get, populate all of them. But in truth, we astronomers think of stars as a gas, like gas particles moving about in the galaxy all in different directions. Um, and so the stars that are closest right now, the Alpha Centauri system, will not be the closest stars to Earth in millions of years. Other stars will be. And so if, you know, it's very hard to go, say, 10 light years, but one light year is reasonable, well, then every so often a star will get that close and you'll be able to make the jump and settle that star as well. And so if you have very short probe ranges, uh, it can be very difficult to settle the galaxy because you have to rely on these close encounters. So that's the kind of parameter we would play with and say, you know, given that there aren't any active alien settlements in the solar system right now, what parameters does that rule out and what parameters does it allow? And it turns out there are parameters where the whole galaxy is mostly filled with settlements, and yet Earth has not had one in the past million years. And that's consistent with the fossil record because we wouldn't know if it had been in the last million years. Um, and so this is one resolution, if you like, to the Fermi paradox. Uh, is is to just deny the fact that we haven't ever been visited. And, you know, you'd say, where is everybody? Like, oh, well, you know, 10 million years ago down there on that rock layer, that's where they were. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we wouldn't know. And so um, there's a lot of ways out, basically, of the so-called Fermi paradox, either by making galactic settlement difficult or just saying that they've been here and that they're not here at the moment. Another interesting aspect of this work to me is that it sounds like a sensitivity analysis and that you could say, well, some of these parameters have a lot bigger effect on whether the galaxy gets heavily settled or than others do. 
Did you find that? To be um, it's it's complex because there there are so many parameters you can imagine, like how fast the ships go, how often you launch the ships, what their range is, what part of the galaxy you are in, because some places have a lot of stars and some have hardly any, and the stars move faster in some parts. Um, and then there are halo stars which move in other directions from the rest of the stars. So there's a lot of parameters. Um, what we found, though, is that many of them can just be reduced to how often do you successfully settle a nearby star. And if you have big probe ranges, then it's a lot. But if you can only settle 1% of stars because they need to be just right, then it's much fewer. And so um, we actually found sort of um, the opposite, that there's big differences in sensitivities in those parameters. We found they're degenerate, as we say. Um, and it all comes down to... There are many to, different ways to adjust that. How frequently do you exactly. settle? Exactly. And so the main thing is how often does a settlement copy itself. And so the bottom line is, if typical settlements last, let's make up a number, let's say 100,000 years, then if they produce multiple colony ships that go and settle nearby stars in that 100,000 years, then you're going to get a, a front and the whole galaxy will get populated. But if they only produce, say, one, then it's going to be touch and go and you're not going to set that up. And the galaxy will have some places with life and other places without it sounds a lot like the R naught parameter in infectious disease epidemiology. How well, many people does one person infect? That's a good point. And so you could imagine places like the center of the galaxy would be like Disneyland, lots of stars in close contact. And then, right, if you think of technological life as some sort of pathogen, <laughs> then uh, a place like the galactic center is like Disneyland and measles can just jump from person to person to person. Uh, whereas if you're out, uh, you know, in, in, in farmland somewhere with a very low population density, it's, it's much harder. And we know that uh, our neighborhood is sort of halfway out. It's about the Milky halfway way. out. That's right. So this argues that perhaps the Galactic Center will have a lot and that we may be part of the answer is that, that settling nearby stars uh, is, is hard out where we are but easier down closer to the galactic center. Now, one problem with that is that when the stars get all crowded like that, you're also closer to a lot of stars that occasionally explode. <laughs> so it's possible the galactic center is a very poor place <laughs> to expect technological life to have risen. People have suggested that this is actually the Goldilocks zone of the galaxy, where we have enough you know, interesting metals and things from exploding stars to make life, but not so many that it gets sterilized all the time. So a supernova does sterilize everything in this neighborhood. Uh, in its neighborhood, that's right. You don't you don't want a, a supernova to go off when you're when you're trying to form life on your planet too close. So for this analysis, did you have to make any supernatural assumptions like faster than light travel or anything? No, we really tried to avoid those. Most of the previous uh, studies that had tried to work on this had just made, even tacitly sometimes, the assumption that, oh, you know, in the future we'll be able to go 10% the speed of light or 1% the speed of light. And I think that's actually not at all a given. There are a lot of problems with moving that fast. And it's probably, in my opinion, much more likely that you, they'll – that, that we or they or anyone doing this sort of a migration would simply learn to live in some way on a very long voyage and that there would just be this itinerant population between the stars that's doing the migrations. Sort um, of mini planets in the form of spaceships. Yeah, you know, hollow out an asteroid and use its mass for energy with your mass to energy converter because we're in the future now. And, uh, and yeah, and just live there for 100,000 years on the journey. And so it would not be the people that left that arrived in that model. And so we made sure to include that in our parameters. We certainly looked at fast ships. And when you have fast ships, yes, the galaxy fills very, very, very quickly. Um, but we thought about the, the lower limit we did was the speed of Voyager. Because we figured that 
you know, the, the, our interstellar probes are the slowest interstellar probes out there. And we still thought it was fair. If you're going to settle another star, you'll go at least as fast as the Voyager probes. But even at those speeds, if you launch them much, you know, if you launch many such probes before a settlement falls, like 10 of them, for instance, to nearby stars, that's enough to populate most of the galaxy, even with slow ships. And a lot of that comes because the stars are moving. So, you know, even, even if you don't send out many probes, um, your settlement will just, it moves through the galaxy and there's always fresh new stars coming by for you to send probes out to. So, you know, you send probes out to the nearest 10 stars, you wait long enough, 10 more stars come along. And so one settlement actually produces many, many copies of itself because the stars are moving even when the ships are slow. So in, in the course of doing this research, did you come upon things you thought, well, that's a really interesting question. We should look at that next. Or Oh, always. Every paper I've written, we are like, oh, you know what else we should do? And at some point we have to say, no, stop, publish the paper. <laughs> so uh, yes, we have lots of ideas for what we'd like to do next. What I would like to do next, for instance, is allow every settlement to change its character. So we assumed every settlement for the whole history of the galaxy would always launch a ship at some rate or would always have last for some amount of time. But I think in reality, every settlement will just be completely different. It'll have its own culture. It'll have its own propensity for launching these things, its own propensity for the kind of, for even retaining the technology to do such a thing. Um, and so I'd like every settlement with time to sort of change the degree to which it explores uh, and then see what that does. And my suspicion, if we were to do that, uh, is that the galaxy will fill much more quickly because every settlement has a chance of launching lots of ships all at once. And even if most colonies or settlements aren't producing these ships, the few that produce lots and lots of them, well, those will be the ones that drive the expansion. And so the expansion will be driven by the small number of settlements that produce a lot of ships. And my suspicion is that'll actually be uh, very efficient at filling the galaxy. And do you think they'll be probably governed by a uh, dark emperor? We, in science fiction, alien species are often very monocultural, right? You know, the Klingons are warlike and the Ferengi like money. And, you know, it be, because they're trying to talk about different aspects of humanity, it's fiction and it's really about people, not about what aliens would really be like. But if we look at people, people have all kinds of characters and different communities have all sorts of different propensities for doing different kinds of things. And so I think that even within each settlement, you'll have a variety of propensities for exploration. Uh, and so, yeah, we shouldn't look for solutions, so-called solutions to the so-called Fermi paradox that say, oh, well, maybe they all do blah, because I just think that's extremely unlikely. I think it's more likely that we need to look for a solution that's robust no matter what they all are doing, because they all will be doing a large number of things. It seems like there's an interesting potential for overlap here with astrobiological research mm -hmm. and the people who are investigating the question of what other forms of life could there be and mm -hmm. which ones would be more common, possibly, mm -hmm. uh, more likely to succeed on a yeah. uh, you know, interstellar uh, scale, mm -hmm. um, which would presumably be tied up with questions of what resources do, do those forms of life need? What do they thrive on? And what do they use for not just their own reproduction, but the reproduction of their settlements? Um, Is that there, there's, a, there's a lot of, of, of commonalities. Uh, so one that comes to mind, uh, people wonder whether microbial life might be able to be transported among the planets. And people have even started to wonder, you know, if life is really common in the galaxy, it might even travel interstellar distances on rocks. And, you know, a lot, if not the building blocks of life, maybe even life itself uh, could spread. And that's a very similar model to settlement ships, this sort of inadvertent, you know, an asteroid hits a planet, knocks up rocks, and then those rocks fly through space. And, you know, your, your, 
your water bears or whatever land on another planet, and now it's infected with life as well. Some people call this the panspermia model. This is the, of- the lithopanspermia, rocks, panspermia via rocks is, is when, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, this, this, I mean, this is an astrobiological question. We're talking about the spread of life. And so, absolutely, it has all sorts of parallels with explosive radiating growth of, say, an invasive species that gets introduced somewhere and spreads all over the place. And also with the history of human migration across the earth. So a lot of the, the work that we're doing uh, is informed by what we think we understand about how humans spread across the globe. Actually, I think that is a really good model. Um, so if you want to summarize the Fermi paradox in human terms, you could imagine an anthill somewhere, let's say, you know, in, in Africa somewhere or, or, or in some national park, anywhere in the world you like. And uh, the ants are contemplating, you know, whether there exist large creatures like us uh, that have technology that let them travel quickly, you know, and they're imagining airplanes and don't know if they exist. And someone says, no, that can't possibly be right. Because if there were airplanes, they'd be able to cross the entire globe in hours. And the globe is at least much, much older than that. So if they could really travel that fast, they'd be right here by now. And the truth is, yes, humans have been everywhere on Earth, but we don't stay. <laughs> and so that might be the answer in the galaxy. The galaxy has been crisscrossed numerous times, let's say. But, you know, they just haven't stopped to stay here any more than we stop to stay most places on the surface of the Earth. Not in the few thousand years anyway that we've been observing. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's years. fair that, you know, we're not going to become Trantor from uh, the Foundation series, you know, the, 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 the globe-spanning city. Yeah. Um, that, that's, a much, that's a much more difficult project than simply visiting every place. Well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. You can find a link to NASA's Great Debate website, which includes posts, presentations, and videos from 14 astronomers at scientificamerican.com slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Wade Gibbs. Thanks for clicking on us. 